Well, this morning we are returning to our Lenten series where we are considering particular habits in the Christian life. And the particular habit that I want us to consider this morning is that of fighting temptation. And to do this, I want us to read from James chapter 1 and verses 12 to 18. We looked at James 1, 19 to 27 last week, so we're going backwards this week. James 1, we'll begin reading in verse 12. Let us now hear God's word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers or my beloved family. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in this relatively short letter, the first thing James focuses on is the place of outward trials in the Christian life, and in particular, how in the midst of those trials, God isn't absent, but active, active for our good, for the good of maturing us, of making us into a people who will one day stand before our God, perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And because this is so, James tells us to rejoice, to rejoice not in the trials themselves, but to rejoice in the truth that in the midst of those trials, God is at work growing us more and more to be like Jesus, like Jesus who himself suffered and endured the great trial of the cross for his people. But now in coming to verse 12 of chapter 1, James begins to shift his focus from outward trials to inner temptation, to that inward impulse that so easily pulls us away from God to sin. And in making this shift, James connects outward trials to inner temptation. For trials and temptation, although distinct, are inseparably linked. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for temptation can be translated as either temptation or as trial. And the reason is because every trial that we face contains the potential for temptation. A trial can either be an opportunity to draw nearer to Jesus or a temptation to draw away from Jesus. One commentator put it this way, it's always easier to slip back than it is to step forward when we face trials. And that's why every trial can become a temptation. Therefore, every circumstance we meet requires a decision. Will we persevere and go on with God? Or will we listen to that inner voice which suggests that the easy way of disobedience and disloyalty is better? Now, as I said last week, James is a realist. He knows we're weak. We're prone to wander that we're susceptible to all sorts of sins. He knows how each of us are daily tempted to lie, to gossip, 
to be lazy. He knows we're tempted by sexual sin, that we're tempted to be silent when we should speak, and tempted to speak when we should be silent. He knows we're constantly tempted to live for the gratification of self, for instant gratification. In the present, we find ourselves bombarded by all sorts of temptations, general as well as unique temptations to each and every one of us. And because this is so, James wants to teach us how we're to be on guard against temptation so as to resist temptation when it comes. And he does this by focusing on two primary things, the reality of temptation and the remedy for temptation. So first then, the reality of temptation. And James's overarching goal in making us aware of the reality of temptation is to keep us from being deceived. That's why he writes in verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved family. James doesn't want us to be in the dark when it comes to the reality of temptation. And that's why he teaches us what he does in verses 13 to 16. And so doing, he teaches us four things. First, he teaches us not to be deceived for who's responsible for temptation. You see, within each of us resides a proclivity to shift the blame for temptation. Think about it. When we've messed up, when we've sinned, we find ourselves saying things like this, well, my circumstances drove me to it. Maybe we can be more specific. If my spouse hadn't spoken to me in the way that she did, I wouldn't have been tempted to return the favor, to lash out in return. Now, I don't ever do that. Y'all may do that, but... Oh, there's my wife, so I better actually be be truthful. Of course I do that. You blame the circumstance. You blame somebody else. Or we use the classic line, the devil made me do it. He knows my weak spots, and as a result, he tempted me and led me astray. Now, here's the thing. These statements contain a grain of truth, but they don't contain the whole truth. At the same time, these statements are related in that they're basically doing the same thing. They're shifting the blame for temptation to sin away from ourselves. And ultimately, if you really think about it, they're shifting the blame to God. After all, He's sovereign. He's in control of my circumstances. He brought me my spouse. He allows the devil to come after me. Therefore, God must be ultimately responsible for my temptation. I mean, didn't James already say that God's responsible and at work in our outward trials? So surely he must be responsible for the inward temptation as well. Now, is this right reasoning? Well, not according to James. That's why he says in verses 13 and 14, let no one say when he's tempted in a trial and being tempted in that trial, don't let anybody say, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Well, because God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God uses trials to make us, but he never uses temptation to break us. God isn't responsible for temptation in that he never entices his children to sin. For such a thing is utterly contrary to his good and holy and unchanging character. God can't be tempted, and God doesn't tempt anyone. So who's ultimately responsible, according to James? We are. The origin of our temptation resides in our own hearts, in our hearts that are depraved by disordered desires, and most of all, the desire to be our own master. 
Verse 14, but each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Our desire to be our own sovereign. Now, desire itself isn't the problem. No, desire is God-given. But the truth is we humans are fallen, and in our fallenness, our desires have been distorted. So that now within each of us, by nature, aren't good desires, right desires, but disordered desires. Desires for self to the exclusion of God. Desires for self-pleasure, self-promotion, and self-praise. As humans, we're desiring creatures. Yet because we're fallen humans, our desires are no longer naturally directed toward God. They're directed to other things for life and satisfaction, created and temporary things. Seen in this way, we're ultimately responsible for our temptations. Temptations to live for self rather than for God. To live autonomously as opposed to living under God's authority. Second, James teaches us not to be deceived concerning the attraction of temptation. Temptation has a persuasive appeal to it. I mean, the whole reason we're tempted in the first place is because what we're tempted to do is appealing. It's appealing to us. It's very attractive. And the word that James uses to express this is the word enticing. And it's a word that expresses a magnetism of desire. Temptation, in whatever form it takes, is attractive. And in its attraction, it's able to grab our attention. In thinking about this, the picture I get is that of our family dog, Buckley, who, when he's confronted with food, all of a sudden goes into a sort of hypnotic trance. He becomes fixated, where all he can do is focus on the food that's right in front of him. We actually like to to play with him a little bit and to toy with the rest of the family members. In other words, if we hold a piece of food, and here is Buckley, he's fixated on the food, and you could say something like this to him. Do you love Daddy the most? And if you do this, his little head does this. If you say, and do you love Mama? And you do this, back and forth, and of course he says no, because all he can focus on is the food. If he could speak, this is what he would say. I want it, I want it, I want it. It's kind of the way we imagine him speaking, maybe even a little better. And what James is telling us is that temptation works the same way in our lives. It attracts, it entices, it grabs our attention. It, in a sense, hypnotizes hypnotizes us so that all we can think is, I want it, I want it, I want it, I need it. I've got to have this thing. I've got to do this thing or I'm not going to be satisfied. And the reason temptation's attractive is because it promises instant pleasure. We know about this. It's moments of being tempted. If I could just have this, if I could just do this, then I would find some comfort. Then I would find some relief. Then I would find some pleasure. And I would find it right now. But here's the thing. Temptation can never fulfill its promise. It promises a lot, but it can never fulfill it. It promises pleasure. And for a time, it may give it. But in the end, all it can really give is pain. The pain of guilt. The pain of shame. The pain that reveals again those words of the Rolling Stones who sing for all of us, I can't get no satisfaction. 
I thought that would satisfy me. If I did this or had this, but I'm still not satisfied. On the surface, temptation, the temptation to gain instant pleasure apart from God is attractive. But underneath its supposed appeal lies an insidious emptiness. The emptiness of death, which manifests itself again in guilt and shame and brokenness. Temptation comes wrapped in beautiful packaging. But once that package is opened, there's nothing inside but the smell of rot. Third, James teaches us not to be deceived concerning the power of temptation. Temptation has a very powerful effect over us. And James's point is that we'll be deceived if we think temptation can be easily overcome. It can't. And the reason is because temptation wages a war within. And left to ourselves, we haven't the resources to prevail in this war. We're weak. Temptation is strong. And that's why in a deeply spiritual sense, we're addicts when it comes to temptation. We're easily lured by it, says James. And the image he uses is one of being dragged off helplessly by the forces of temptation. And like an addict, we find it near impossible to resist when personal and particular temptations present themselves. In commenting on this, C.S. Lewis writes, A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. He says this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in to giving in to those sinful desires. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. It isn't easy to resist temptation. The truth is we're a people who are prone to wander, to leave the God that we love. And the reason is because we're not yet perfect. We're not yet complete. We still lack And it's that lack that temptation latches onto. Again, if you just had this, if I just did this, then I wouldn't lack. And yet we find again and again we still lack because we're all on the way. And only God himself can fill that lack. So temptation does and has a powerful effect over us. And that's why we must be aware of this. That's why the Apostle Paul warns us as he does in 1 Corinthians 10 in the context of temptation. Let anyone who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. If we think we're immune to temptation, that we're not susceptible to it, then we're not only deceived, but we stand ready to fall. And then fourth, James teaches us not to be deceived about the danger of temptation. Look at the process by which temptation works. Verse 14, but each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived... When it's given into, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation's the result of our sinful desires, and when those desires are gratified, they give birth to an ugly child. Now, you never want to tell a parent they have an ugly child, but the reality is, James says, this is one ugly child. It gives birth to sin. 
to more rebellion against God. And when sin grows up, it has another even uglier child, which is death. Death in our lives. So temptation rises from those desires. We give into it. It leads to sin, leading to death. This is the ugly process of temptation, and it's a serious process, one that can't be trifled or toyed with. Now, it's true temptation in and of itself isn't sin, but that doesn't mean that sin and temptation isn't dangerous. No, it's very dangerous. For temptation, when it's not resisted, Again, leads to sin, and then it leads to death, to death being unleashed in our lives in all of its varied forms. And because temptation involves this dangerous process, we can't simply flirt with it and expect to go unscathed. If you play with the fire of temptation, you will at some point be burned. And therefore, when we're tempted, what should our response be? Flight. One of the central ways we fight temptation is by fleeing temptation. We must run from it. Think of the two biblical examples of Joseph and David. Two men who were tempted by the same sin of adultery. What was Joseph's response? He ran. He got away from the situation as fast as he could. And this wasn't a weak response. No, this was an honest response. For Joseph knew the danger of temptation, that he was capable of sinning against his God. What was David's response? Well, instead of fleeing, he lingered. He inquired. In so doing, his disordered desire for Bathsheba lured and enticed him into sin. And that sin gave way to death, literal as well as spiritual death. And the point is this, we can't flirt with temptation. No, we must flee from temptation. Where? To God, who is our refuge. My friends, it will be deceived if we think we can give temptation a foothold and expect it to not lead to sin and then lead to death. So this is James's teaching concerning the reality of temptation. We're responsible for it. It is attractive. It has a powerful hold on our lives, and it's extremely dangerous. And if we deny any of these things, we're in the dark. We're deceived. But notice, in addition to, being dece- to not being deceived about the reality of temptation, James adds a second thing, the remedy. It's the way the Bible works. It diagnoses the problem, and then it gives the remedy. This is what James is doing here. Verse 16 again, don't be deceived, my beloved family. How can we not be deceived? Well, of course, by being aware of the reality of temptation, but also by knowing God's remedy for temptation. And what is God's remedy for temptation? Well, ultimately, it's himself. Put another way, the remedy for temptation is knowing and loving God, knowing him as our Father, whose unchanging character is good and generous. You see, when temptation comes, one of the central things that happens is this. Our knowledge of God gets skewed. It gets distorted so that we begin to doubt, to doubt his gracious love, to doubt his power to protect, to doubt his generosity to provide. In the midst of temptation, we begin to see sin as better than God. And because this is so, what James seeks to do here is to reframe our knowledge of God, that God our Father, verse 17 who himself is without variation or change, is the giver of every good and perfect gift. 
In other words, God's posture toward us is one of absolute and unchangeable goodness. Goodness that doesn't ebb and flow. That isn't abundant one day, but then absent the decks. No, in Christ, God's goodness remains constant. And it does so not only when things are going well, but when things are seemingly falling apart. It's easy to proclaim God is good when things are good. But it's not so easy when times are bad. And what James wants to help us to to see and to believe is that God is good and he's good all the time. And with this, James wants us to see and to confess that God, our father, knows best and he wants the best for us. So much so that he's given us his very best, which is himself. Ultimately, God is the good and perfect gift. We have to grasp this. We're not going to recognize the gifts until we recognize that God himself is the good and perfect gift. And he's given us the gift of himself in giving us Jesus and the Spirit. Out of his goodness, the Father gave his beloved Son for us. His Son, then in love, gave himself up to death for us. Christ gave his all to have us as his own. And he gave himself up that he might in turn give us his own spirit. And it's the spirit who showers us with the gifts of divine love, divine forgiveness, divine assurance, and divine hope. In Christ and by the spirit, God the Father has given us his very best. And in working this out, James hones in on three particular gifts that come with the great gift of God giving us himself. What are those three gifts? Well, the first gift is a new birth. Verse 18, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. What's the word of truth? What's the gospel? It's the message that God in Christ has given us his very best in Jesus. And he gave us this gift not because he was obligated to. He didn't owe us anything. No, it says of his own will. His own decision, his own purpose and plan, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Through Christ and by the Spirit, we've been given a fresh start. And it's a continuing fresh start. We've been given a new birth that brings with it a new God-given identity, a solid identity rather than a fluid identity. The identity of being the beloved children of God now and forever. And with this new birth comes new energies and new desires. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't never desire God. We wouldn't love God as as James calls us to here. We need something new to happen to us. We need a new birth and a new heart. We need the Spirit to give us new energies and new desires. And that's what happens in our new birth. And yet, because we have this new birth with these new spirit-given energies and these desires, because we have these, we're now able to fight against temptation only by the Spirit. We're able to recognize that living truthfully and authentically comes not through giving into our disordered desires, our inner state, No, it comes through giving ourselves, our whole selves to Christ, who himself is known in the word of truth, meaning that the only way that we can learn to to live according to these new energies and new desires is by immersing ourselves in God's word. Isn't that what the psalmist says? When he says, I've hidden your word in my heart, that what? 
I might not sin against you. By grace, God has brought us forth into the new life, into a Christ-centered life, which is a life of love, of being loved by God so as to learn to love God in return, to see God and desire God as our greatest good. And central to this new life is the gift of a new community, the church. God has given us one another so that we might help one another resist temptation. In our fight against temptation, we need the beloved family of God. Think about it. How how can our individual desires for sin be resisted if we only live individually? We need the community of the church to help us resist temptation. How? Well, by encouraging one another. Encouraging one another in the truth that Christ is better. In the truth to embrace Christ more and more. So we've been given a new birth, new desires by the Spirit. And yes, those are in conflict now with the sinful desires. We saw that back in our study in Galatians. But we do have a new heart that is now beating, however slowly, beating for Christ. But then there's the second gift, and it's the gift of a new call. Verse 18 again, of his own will, God's brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And the image here is that God's brought us a new birth that we might demonstrate this new birth by the way that we live. For first fruits refers to that initial part of a coming harvest. And here James uses this image to say that as followers of Jesus, we're to be an initial taste and demonstration to the world of God's new creation that will come in full at Christ's return. And contextually, this means we've been brought forth to bear witness to the world what it means to be true to God rather than true to our sinful selves. Put another way, we're to demonstrate to the world how being a true self doesn't come by living according to our sinful and destructive desires. No, it comes through living according to God's good desires. We're to show the world that Christ is better than our sinful and self-centered desires. And one of the central ways we do that is by ourselves fighting our own temptations, which boils down to this, saying no to ourselves. So we might say yes to Christ in every area of our lives. Now, the truth is, in in this fight, we will at times fail. We'll fail miserably. We all have testimonies of miserable failure in some way. We've all and will give in to our sinful desires. But in those times, when that happens, the encouragement is don't despair. God's faithfulness is stronger than our failure. We belong to the one who never failed in any way. Who, when he was tempted, stayed true. And he did so for us. Christ passed the ultimate test of temptation. And in so doing, he secured our salvation. He secured God's love and forgiveness as well as God's strength to repent, God's strength to persevere, and God's strength to bear witness to his good and gracious love. My friends, the way we learn to fight temptation is to recognize that Christ first fought for us. He prevailed against temptation perfectly. 
for us. And he did so at great cost to himself, at the cost of, a cost of him being accursed on the cross so that we sinners might be accepted by God and in being accepted by God, be given this call to demonstrate to the world that Christ, who came for us, who lived for us, who died for us and was raised for us, is indeed better than living for self. Well, there's one more gift, and it's the promise of a crown of life. Verse 12, a crown of life that's promised to all who love God. And again, we can't love God apart from this new birth. So the promise of a crown of life. You see, one of our great problems, and I've alluded to this, is that when temptation comes, the problem is that we're nearsighted. We only see and feel what's right in front of us, and in so doing, we fail to see and remember what God has in store for us. We don't remember the future. That's a strange way to put it. That's the reality of the Christian life. We remember the solid future. Faith sets its hope on the substance of things to come. The substance is there. That is the future. We have to remember and keep in mind the future. And James describes that future here as this crown of life. What does it represent? It represents life in all of its fullness, in all of its dimensions. It represents becoming and actually being everything God desires us to be as humans, both in body and soul. And James's point is this, the route to this crown lies along the road of the cross. That is of learning more and more to endure trials and to resist temptation and to do so in the assurance of one day seeing Christ face to face, of seeing him so as to share fully and abundantly in his authentic life. Receiving the crown lies along the road of embracing the cross. We fight and flee temptation. Because what we've been promised in the gospel is not a fading crown leading to death. That's all temptation can offer us, a fading crown leading to death. No, what we've been offered is an everlasting crown that represents the ultimate blessing of God, the blessing of the good life, the life of everlasting communion with God where all we'll desire is God because he alone can satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. You know, the novelist and playwright Oscar Wilde once said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. In one sense, he's right. You don't want to be tempted? Just give in and keep giving in. It's going to lead to death. And that's why James says the exact opposite. He says the only way to get rid of temptation is not to yield to it, but to resist it. And the only way we can resist it is by knowing how it works and by seeing and trusting that God in his way is better. He's better than anything temptation has to offer, for he offers us himself and his crown of life. And the question for us is, is this attractive? Is it attractive to you? Is God and his crown what you desire above all? Well, it won't be if you don't see that God is good. How do we know that God is ultimately good? Christ, Christ who came to fight for us, who when he was tempted, tempted to live only for himself, did resist. He was tempted to live only for himself, and yet he chose to live for his Father 
and for you. He didn't give in. No, he gave up his all for you. He saw having you as his own as better. And it's only when we begin to recognize this and receive this by faith that we'll begin to desire, to desire him as better than anything temptation has to offer. Therefore, my beloved family, fix your eyes on Christ and fight the good fight of faith. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of your word. We thank you that this word points us to the one who fought for us, who did everything for us, and who in grace has given us a new birth and a new calling, that in Christ and by the Spirit, and only by Christ and only by the Spirit can we begin to see these horrid and ugly desires of our hearts that can be so attractive and yet only lead to death. We pray that by the Spirit, we would indeed see that Christ is better. We would run to him, lean upon him, and keep in mind always that we are called to love him who first loved us. Amen.